Welcome back to Range Anxiety. It's that time again. I'm your host, Martin Donnan, bringing you 30 years of automotive tuning experience and general mucking around with cars, I suppose, in 30 minutes, a couple of times every week. <sighs> Getting towards the end of the first week back at work. And there's been some good things happening. I've been doing a lot of tidying up. I've been uh, doing some clever software things. Um, with new big throttle bodies on the fronts of superchargers and, and all sorts of good things actually and I've, I've been enjoying myself, I've been here solo too so like I said in the previous Epicast, I've actually had to do a bit of work which is something that sometimes some would think is quite foreign to me now I've got a bit of a reach out, uh, no not a reach around, a reach out that I need to uh, put out there to some of the listeners of this Epicast I need a more consistent intro track who's a muso out there, who can put something together for me, who can put range anxiety up in lights, lyrically or musically, or with an instrument of some sort, I'd be very appreciative and make it worth your while and make you a partial sponsor of this wonderful show. Who could turn down such a thing? Um, have had some feedback, been getting some. I did get one the other day that said, you suck. You know, that's fine. Normally a Cohiba uh, when I get a chance, because to my American listeners, such wonderful things are not banned in this country. We don't really care about the uh, Castro's government or ex-government so much over here. So yeah, nice Cohiba would go down well. I suck. Um, someone else said, uh, you don't talk about V8s enough. What are you scared of them? Uh, no, in fact, I love my V8s. I still own a V8. And I've probably owned, well, I don't know, 30 or 40 of the lovely things over the years of various different makes and types. So I think today we talk about the wonderful V8 engine and where it started for me. Um, obviously, where it ends is, is you know, with the LT4 and the LS9 and, you know, all of the LSA and all of those really, really cool things that exist now. But once upon a time, you really had to be a dyed-in-the-wool kind of supporter to like your v8 engines um because other than the super expensive stuff coming out of europe and some of the high-end american stuff which we really didn't get in australia um for a long period of time uh, most of them were junk um and even some of the american stuff at the time in the days that the late 80s and early 90s of the emissions cars yeah yeah oh, there were japanese four cylinders that were eminently more powerful and about eight times more efficient than, than any of the V8s that you could afford. Yeah, so where does it all start with me? What were the first V8s I came across? Well, I'm not old enough to have worked on any of the early Chev stuff or even much of the, you know, the 350 stuff when I was young. To me, it started with the plastics, which is that wonderful Holden 308 five-litre thing um, that is so fabled in this country in Australia, little known in the US. It was a bit of a hybrid derivative Aussie design with some US roots, wasn't really related to a Chev really in any way. It was our own bespoke piece and you know, it was a pretty good thing, but let's face it, back in the day, it was a pretty gutless thing. You could get it in 253 cubic inches or 308 cubic inches. And you know, it was, it was sort of top of the pops here for a while, but seriously, right back in the day whenever Holden or GM wanted to go racing in this country they somehow managed to get a 350 on board um group C days they started to muck around with the 308s and I think later in the in the um 
early touring car group C days or whatever it was called back then they used the 308 but really it was a struggle the whole time to make the things make power and, and remain competitive and sure enough that was that was the case on the road as well there were hardcore nutters out there that you know uh, such as the Brock cars you know that, that would make a 150 or you know 220 horsepower version of this thing or a 200 horsepower version of it and it was a great thing really they weren't that great i mean you, we used to specialize even in two liter alphas out top ending the aussie v8s in standard form anyway um up the freeway and you know kind of embarrassing them a bit when they ran out of legs at about 105 mile an hour i mean there'd be plenty of people listening to this that'll be going martin you are full of shit that never happened but yeah yeah it did they you know 253s were you could pick them off in anything japanese pretty much other than a KE20 Corolla, and even then, if you had a Carby on the Corolla, it would just about nail most 253s. Um, so yeah, the, the real turning point came, obviously, with the, uh, oh, about 88, I think it was, uh, and when they bought out the 165 kilowatt uh, Delco injected 308, or was it 304? I'm not sure, but anyway, it was the Aussie 5 litre, and it was injected, and I remember it had 165 kilowatts of snort, and people that even owned uh, modified carburetor versions of the engine just went to the dealership and drove this injected space-age machine, and were just blown away by the performance the VNSS had, you know, it was every bit as hard, every bit as tough as a Brock, modified Brock Commodore, yet it was holding standard offering and that's kind of where it all began you know we used these these things used to make like a good solid 120 kilowatts at the wheels like 160 horsepower unbelievable well 110 i reckon it was and you could put a chip in them a set of extractors on them and they'd make 120 125 maybe 130 with if the wind was blowing in the right direction and then you can put like a crane 276 cam in them you could get these things up to 160 to 180 kilowatts at the wheels, you know, some HSV software, maybe even add the knock sensor like the HSVs had. It was really, really heady stuff. And they were actually, you know, as fast as a six-cylinder BMW by then. They were starting to get there. Of course, the floodgates had opened on Japanese imports by that stage, so just about any, you know, uh, Skyline or whatever of the era would, would walk one pretty easily. But the seeds were sown and they were you know a fully tricked one would go 180 at the wheels and if you put the motec eight throttles on and put the 355 stroker kit in and did all of that really cool stuff you could make upwards of 210 to 225 300 horsepower at the wheels out of one of these things yep they were pretty crazy things and then there was obviously the group a variants that came out you know, during the model life from HSV and they had twin throttle body plenums and roller rockers, I think, to stop all the pressed tin rockers breaking during um, Group A racing. And, you know, they, they were starting to get serious by about then, you know, and it was pretty good. So it was, it was hard pressed in anyone's mind at the time to even begin to understand that there would be much like happened with the carburetor 308 to the injected version there was just going to be something came out again that was very very stock that just simply walked even the most modified of these and this is where the equilibrium started to come into play and that was with the advent of the ls1 
you know, people at first were like, oh, it sounds like shit. Yeah, it, it, I do believe it had a different firing order to the Aussie V8, so it, it didn't have as much of a traditional ski boat sort of V8 rumble to it that the Aussie V8 did. But the LS, you know, it shared the same bore center lines with the 350 Chev. It was aluminium block, had these tiny little short push rods, it had alloy heads that outflowed anything, just anything you, you could put on a Holden. It had like a, a pretty highly developed inlet manifold. It had a great injection system and sure enough, they would make 160 to 170 kilowatts at the wheels standard. And that was being held back in all sorts of ways. You know, you chuck an exhaust and a tune in one of those things and an inlet, boom, all of a sudden 230. And this standard aluminium Chevrolet LS1 would destroy anything that ever came out of this country. Sorry if I'm offending again, but these are the facts. And all of a sudden, these things then had the power to match it with a lot of the imported stuff. In fact, I remember um, right back in the day in 2002 when I had my brand new manual six-speed LS1 powered VX. It was in a, a, a local magazine called Street Commodores here. I reckon it was the V. Oh, was it the VX files that I, I called that? We did a build-up series on it, and it was it was pretty darn cool. You know, I did a uh, some I custom designed some headers for it that were equal length, and tried to taper them. And a company called Exhaust Technology built them for me. Uh, I put a decent inlet on the thing. I was one of the original owners and users of a piece of software before HP tuners called LS1 Edit and it was very clunky but it allowed you to tune to things and you know we looked inside the standard tuning and I think the VX had something like 11 or 12 degrees total timing in it and, and you know on, on our 93 Mon which is a 98 Ron um, fuel that would happily take another 10 degrees and you know, the power started flooding in. I reckon I had 240 kilowatts at the wheels out of this thing, totally internally stock. And being a bit of a noob, I, I lightened it out a bit. I took some things out that didn't need to be in it, like um, the interior. And I took it out the drags with standard gears in it. And you know, I, I couldn't make the thing hook up. I, I couldn't get a good 60 foot out of it. I had the wrong tires in it. I had circuit racing suspension in it. I think uh, I had circuit slicks on it. I was running like two two or 2160 for its best. It was just absolutely hopeless. It, just, it would not step off the plate in any way, shape or form. But it still, I still think it ran 1301 at 112 mile per hour. So it certainly had the legs down the deep end, but didn't have much in the way of uh, taking off skills. And I had a, I knew a bloke at the time and he had a new E55 AMG. I think they were a 5.5 when they was a, Five liter, I'm not sure. I think they're 5.5, normally aspirated thing, rated at 270 kilowatts or whatever they were. You know, it was an expensive new car and it had like a, I don't know, it was a five speed auto in it, I think. And one of his mates was driving it home because we had a private track day that day and I don't think he raced that, he was racing something else. But one of his mates wanted to give me a roll on lesson. You know, this thing is so fast from 40 mile an hour to 100 mile an hour. And he lined me up in the, six-speed or manual six-speed VX and yeah I, I gave him a lesson like I could pull away the faster we went and the further the LS1 pulled away and that was a sign then that these Aussie things there were these 
these GM-based things in the Aussie cars, the Commodore platform, were going to be fast. This was very early days before most people knew what they were. And there were many haters back then still that were saying, oh, you know, and the price of the Holden engine cars, the original VT series, started to go through the roof because nobody trusted these aluminium things. I mean, people were short-sighted, weren't they? I mean, you looked at it on a piece of paper and the aluminium LS1 kicked the ass, like literally, of, of the Iron Holden in every single direction and it was lighter, it was more efficient, it was more rev happy, it was more power productive and we did some pretty crazy stuff, you know, back in those days. We started stuffing cams into them without realising how to tune them properly and we could tune them flat out. Getting the idle was it was a bit tough back then, you know, up until about 2003 or four till we worked out how to tune them properly in speed density mode. Fast forward to 2020, 21, and there's a lot of uh, experts now that still can't make one idle, you know, it's just basics. It's just what you would do with the carburetor. You do to one of these things, you know, in terms of setting up the fueling for the vacuum, and it's, it's not very, actually very, very hard at all. But a lot of people hassled with it. But we started to really, really push the limits of these things. When I say limits, um, you know, we would uh, the standard RPM limiter was 6,200 RPM. Some of us would sneak them to, you know, 65, 66 with the right valve springs. I mean, the standard valve springs were just junk. They're just so soft on the, on, on the seat. They were like 90 to 100 PSI seat pressure. And, you know, it was all due to emissions and needing to keep the reciprocating friction of the engine low, but it was no good for what we were doing. So a set of springs, um, standard push rods even, decent cam, and there were some guys that were starting to run like just bolt-on cars with, with, with the cam. They were running, you know, like at mid-11s at 120 mile per hour, and to do so, they were just spinning these standard LS1s to RPM points that would have a holding engine in a million pieces all over the track, the road, the floor of the dyno, or wherever it was you happened to pursue such stupid targets. I mean, I know when we were trying for, even with the standard cam, when we were trying to find good bolt-on times and and we'd have the auto slip or the one-two change, we'd set the rev limit to 7,100 RPM. And sure enough, these engines, they would take that all bloody day they would rev and they would rev and they would rev until the cows came home. It was it was really, really quite impressive. And they started going faster and faster and faster till people were knocking on the door of, you know, 10-second cam-only cars. And, you know, yeah, there was some pretty tricky setup there with 90-10s and soft slicks let down. But, you know, 300 kilowatts at the wheels was getting you, or 280 kilowatts at the wheels, or 260 through a high store at a and a converter was getting you some flat 11s, high 10s, low 11s, whatever. The whole concept was, though, to get those sorts of times out of the LS was not to be weak. And our big saying at the time, and my business partner today, John Munro, still uses it, is don't be weak. So, you know, I still get people coming today looking for a 2,500 RPM stall converter. Weak. You won't even notice it. If you're going to put a stall in one of these things, good point to start for the street is 4200 if it's got a good lock up and it's a modern design stall it won't be flaring to 4200 everywhere but on the stab it'll do it to get some of these good cam only and bolt on times 
five and a half, six thousand RPM stall. Don't muck around. Don't muck around with cams. Big, big, big. Don't go for like, you know, baby cams or, you know, stealthy torque cams or whatever. If it's numbers you're chasing, you gotta be aggressive. Same with your diff gears. Don't go from, you know, like a, a three, a 308 to 346 or three, just go straight to 411s. Big stall, hit the throttle, step, pick the front wheels up, off you go. The thing lifts its skirt, you bang off a 1560 foot off the plate hard, keep the thing revving to seven grand, and you'll run the number. And this is where most people go wrong, even today, when they're trying to get good numbers out of these things, is that they're weak with them. So they were heady, heady days. And we thought it was going to be so much better when, when GM came out with the 6-litre, the L76 and L77. And, yeah, they could make some power, but they totally stuffed these things up. You know, they, not only did they have stuff like plastic timing chain tensioners in them, and, and when I say we're getting those times out of LS1s, we we're doing them. You know, stock push rod, stock oil pump, stock timing gear, stock timing chain. They really were a miracle motor, and I think in all of my time, without the help of forced induction and really poor tuning, I reckon of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that I've tuned, I've had one normally aspirated one fail in the dyno, and it, yeah, it, it actually dropped a rod bolt. It, had, it was a country car, so it had spent a lot of its time highly modified on the rev limiter with a big cam, and it had done 170 thousand miles of abuse and i don't know if it dropped a rod bolt or just spun a bearing and, and chucked the rod but you know there was obviously no more metal left to give in these engine that or that particular engine they are people say oh it's done you know it's done seventy thousand miles should i rebuild it no nope. ls1 is either broken or it's not and more often to the point if it's normally aspirated you really got to work at it to break them and most of the ones i've seen break have been the ones that have had the seal broken, as we covered two Epicasts ago. Yeah. The six later, yeah, needed some work, and they put this stupid displacement on demand, collapsible lifter setup in them so you could run them on four cylinders to get better fuel economy. Well, the internal GM documents of the time didn't even support that. They supported that maybe over the life of the car there could be a one to four percent saving in fuel usage that's great you know the things sound like shit when you put an exhaust on them and they collapse so you know the four lifters they collapse they sound like a demented subaru not even cool like a subaru sounds um so yeah the first thing we used to do was get in the software and people would say could you just turn this shit off so yep sure enough we just turned that shit off made them run like v8s again but then there was a problem with the whole oiling system and the oil pump set up and the lifter design that means after you know you're lucky if you make a hundred thousand miles before the things do lifters collapse lifters chew the cam out uh, so the very first thing to do if you've got a late model six liter and they'll say not an ls2 ls2s with the cathedral port head still they're a very cool engine i really like them i've made some good numbers out of them don't ask me why how but i did i've just got a really soft spot for those for the later six liters be prepared to take the valley plate off it sprinkle all the dod crap into the bin put ls7 lifters in it put a decent mellings oil pump on it dod uh, delete kit valley plate new lifters lifter buckets 
once I've chucked some push rods in it while you're there, then you'll start to make some power and then you'll start to make big numbers. You know, I've seen six litres cam only make oh, nearly like 480 horsepower at the wheels, 360 kilowatts, 350 kilowatts. It can be done. GM did very quickly see the error of their ways with that junk though. You know, fix the six litres, great, with their big oval port heads or big square port heads they are actually. They're massively like overly headed, those things, which is great. You know, it gives you heaps of heaps and heaps of potential to make grunt out of them, particularly when you start stuffing air into them with a blower kit. The GM saw the error of their ways and, and you know, came up with the LS3 and it got rid of all of that crap, all of that you know, quasi-flex fuel displacement on demand. They realised that, you know, this was the last of an era and they just built a kicking V8. It still had some junk in it, the LS3, like uh, the plastic timing chain tensioner. And you get people come in and say, oh, my LS3's done lifters. LS3's very rarely do lifters because they're not collapsible rubbish. They're actually a good product. But, you know, the, the, the plastic tensioner breaks after a certain amount of time, you know, 60 to... 150,000 miles and it'll start rattling in the front. They've done lifters. No, 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 no. You put a new tensioner, a dog bone in it, boom, away you go. And the LS3 is the king. And the LS3 with some ported heads and the right camshaft and the right setup will make 500 horsepower normally aspirated at the tyres. And, you know, it's no reason then why the whole LS, the world, convert these things, put them into anything exists. But they're a bloody kicking engine best thing GM ever made, in my opinion. Since then, they've gone off on their, you know, LT4 tangent and, yeah, not as much of a fan, but it just lacks. I mean, they're great still, don't get me wrong. They're better than, you know, anything GM's ever done apart from the LS3, but I like the LS3 because of its just raw, stark simplicity. In fact, uh, the factory supercharged LSA would probably be my favourite. They are a they are a, a real work of art. And with that pathetic little 1900 supercharger on them, they, if you spin that thing hard enough, not, not at the point of destruction, obviously, but if you spin that thing hard enough, they can make some awesome power. So, you know, this, this Epicast, we've only just touched on the LS engines and what they can do. I've still got many brilliant and scary and super cool stories about them because it's what I've... I spent most of my working life working on is that product. I mean, since 98 to now, it's a bloody long time those things have been around. And, you know, they're going to be around for a long time in the future. I still get guys ringing me up saying I've got new Holden. And I'm thinking, well, I haven't made a new Holden since 2016. I've got one of those new Holden V8s. I go, yeah. I go, which one? And they go, pause, you know, bit of silence on the end of the phone. And they go, the injected one. Yeah, which injected one? Oh, sometimes it's the 308, sometimes it's LS1 or any of the other L-series, sometimes it's LS3, sometimes it's an LSA. But, you know, while people are still first-generation owners that happen to buy clean ones, and they are getting hard to find because people have, you know, destroyed them as they do all cars over time, and the, and the cars naturally and the engines naturally fall apart with old age, but there is still a groundswell of people wanting to do stuff to them, and that's great, you know, because if you get one, don't get a throwaway, don't get an old school hold, and if you get something that you want to do a bit of work to, you want it to be reliable, and you want to have some fun, buy a really clean Holden LS, because they are probably one of the best 
most power productive things made in my era that is still affordable and not just stupid money. Well, they're starting to get stupid now, the cars, not the engines. But there you go. I do love V8s. I've owned over, oh, let me count quickly, over a dozen LS series things, retrofitted and other things, but mainly Commodores, and I love them. I love them to death. So there you go. Stop telling me I suck. Stop telling me, well, you know, no, you can. I actually enjoy it. Stop telling me I don't like V8s because I love them. I need that intro track. So come on, someone step up and bloody well do it for me and send me your feedback to dtech, D-T-E-C-H, at S-E-N-E-T, dot com dot A-U. And thank you once more for listening to Range Anxiety.